Turn to Philippians chapter 3. One of the things that we've seen in this book over and over again already, we're only, it's a short book and we're only halfway through it, but one of the things that you can't escape in the book of Philippians is Paul is insistent that the Philippians rejoice. Paul is insistent that they have joy and he sort of sprinkles it throughout the book, several different places. But every time that he does that, it seems that he also brings with it something that isn't naturally something that we would rejoice about. So he starts off by saying that he rejoices that he's in jail. Not something you would normally be happy about, celebrate, be thankful for, but he insists that he is able to and indeed has to rejoice because God's plan is being accomplished by him being in jail, that the gospel is going forth in power into new places, his guards, places that he wouldn't normally have access to, people who wouldn't normally hear. So when you come to chapter 3, He repeats himself, and he says, I don't mind repeating myself. And then he puts it right next to, again, something that you wouldn't normally think is worth rejoicing over, or that why would you bring that up right after saying rejoice? And that is the dangers of false teachers, false doctrine, And then, he contrasts that false teaching, those false doctrines of people who have put their faith in themselves, in their own works, in the flesh. He contrasts that with the gospel of Jesus Christ where the truth is proclaimed that there is hope and salvation only in Jesus Christ and in His righteousness And isn't that where we get our joy from? Isn't that why we are able to celebrate? So let's stand for the reading of God's word here as we are reminded to put no confidence in the flesh. Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, And it is a safeguard to you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But... Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, 
being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Paul still wants the church at Philippi to rejoice. Of course, that's no surprise, having read the rest of the letter. And it's no surprise to them, I'm sure, knowing Paul. Um, But it is a bit of a shock for that to be the opening from someone that you're very concerned about who's in jail. Rejoice, and then to keep repeating it. He still wants them to rejoice, even though there are real sorrows, and we saw some of those last week. When he speaks of the scare that they had with Epaphroditus and how he almost died, and that that would have been sorrow upon sorrow. So Paul acknowledges that there are sorrows. Sorrows for him, sorrows for the Philippians. And here we see dangers. Not just sorrows, but real dangers. And yet he wants them to rejoice even in the midst of those dangers. In fact, for them to rejoice appropriately, for them to have the joy that he is intent on driving into their hearts. And that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to drive joy into their hearts. And that seems kind of, you know, rude, right? What if I don't want to be joyful? (laughs) But he's insistent. You must have joy. And when you have this joy that I keep telling you is a requirement, when you have that joy... That will be a protection against the very dangers that he raises here and now in this passage. What are those dangers? You see, he says it'll be a safeguard to them. For him to repeat it, it'll be a safeguard to them. For them to, for them to come to that joy, it will be a, it'll be a protection to them. From these dangers, what are these dangers? Beware of the dogs. Now, there's nothing more insulting that Paul could have said than to call people dogs. At that time, in that culture, that's, uh, that's just about the worst thing that you can call somebody. Um, dogs were... Dirty, unclean, they were, um, they were given, uh, the, the, the worst place of insult in all of the, uh, especially the people of Israel at this time. And so, for, for Paul to use that word, about the dangers that he's bringing up, the false teaching that he's bringing up in particular, is to flip on its head uh, the, the very thing that these men thought was so good about themselves. He, he says, no, you're not just unable to put confidence in, in the flesh. If, if you're a Judaizer, if you're someone who, who is, is thinking that you're the circumcision, and, and that's what is the next, the next warning, right? In, in point of fact, not only are you not able to put confidence in the flesh, not only are you not the true circumcision, you are a dirty, scoundrel, dog, you're the worst kind of thing, that you're, you're the opposite, you're the farthest end from clean, you are perfectly unclean. So he, he leads with something that is a shocking insult, and then he brings forward with it 
the people, the very people that he's warning against, he then explains who they are. Who are the dogs? Oh, well, the dogs are the very people who insist that they're the opposite of dogs. They're the very people who insist that they are clean. Those who are putting confidence in the flesh. Those who think that they are the circumcision, but in fact are the false circumcision. And they think that they are good workers, workers of good. But in point of fact, they are evil workers. Now, Paul brings this home when he begins to describe what confidence he could have in the flesh. Now, you think of the things that he says in one of his other letters where he talks about how he has served Christ that he's suffered shipwreck, that he's gone through being beaten by the Jews, you know, 39 lashes, that he's been stoned, that he, all these things that he's suffered on behalf of Christ. But in this particular place, he doesn't list all of those things that he did for Christ as works of the flesh. What he actually lists is something that you would think, well, that's clearly not good. What is that thing that, that in his list of Describing himself, did you, did you notice that thing that is obviously bad? What did he say was something that he could have confidence in the flesh for? That you're, you're thinking, wait a minute, that's something good? This is a list of good things, right? What was it? Did anybody notice? Persecuting the church. Circumcise the eighth day. See, this is confidence. He, if anyone else, else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, verse 4, I far more. Why? Well, because of these things that he's about to list. What are they? Well, circumcise the eighth day. According to the law, in other words. Born into the true faith, raised in the true faith, following the law even from the time when he was born given the appropriate markings, given the appropriate uh, symbols and teaching and training, right? Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. Now that's, we have in our minds here uh, a confusion because we think Pharisees and it's like, uh, we know the Pharisees are bad, right? Ah, yuck. No, we got that song, I don't want to be a Pharisee. No, no, I don't want to. You guys know that one? Yeah, okay. That's not worth learning, really. But <laughs> but that's what we think of. We don't want to be Pharisees, right? We know that that's an insult today. But at that time, what you have to remember is that the Pharisees were in contrast to what other group? The Sadducees also come up in that song, I don't want to be a Sadducee. No, no. We don't want to be either one, but at that time, if you had to pick, prior to Jesus, whether you were going to be a Sadducee or a Pharisee, the Sadducees didn't care about the law. The Sadducees were the liberal mainline denominations who had rejected God, rejected His Word, and were simply living in uh, cahoots with the Romans in attempts to control and, and, and establish a power base for themselves. The, the Sadducees were hardly even able to be called Jews. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe, you know, they're, they're, just, they're just crazy liberal. The Pharisees were the people who actually got it. They're like, no, no, this stuff matters. Actually, no, we have to obey the law. No, actually, God's word is true. No, actually, we have to believe it. No, we actually need to learn it and teach it and study it. So to be a Pharisee, as opposed to being a Sadducee, was to be on the right side. You understand? So that's when he says, as to, you know, as to the law, a Pharisee. Someone who actually followed it. Somebody who actually believed it. Somebody who actually cared about it. You think of Psalm 1. And what does it say that the man who is blessed will do? Kids, do you remember?
Oh, come on. Don't you, do any of you know Psalm 1? Can't you tell me anything about it? Yeah, like a tree firmly rooted by streams of living water. What is that living water? It's the law of God. And so the Pharisees understood the necessity of the law, the goodness of the law. So here he is, he's, he's listing out his qualifications for having confidence even in the flesh. And then he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. One of these things is not like the other ones. That does not belong in my mind. But what is he driving at? Why does he include that in the list? Because he thought he was serving the one true God by persecuting the Christians. He at that time considered himself one of the true circumcision. His purpose in persecuting the church was to protect the law of God. His purpose in persecuting the church was to serve God. In his mind, he was being zealous for God's holiness, for God's glory, for God's law. But in point of fact, what was he doing? He was being a worker of evil. Why do we not want to be Pharisees today? Because Pharisee has come to be associated correctly with putting confidence in the flesh. To be a Pharisee is to be someone who's a legalist, right? Don't we make those synonyms today? Pharisaism, legalism, they mean the same thing to us. As to the law, a Pharisee. So now, is, is that a good or a bad thing? Well, what Paul ends up saying about all of these things is that all of them are loss. So he equates his persecuting of the church with the fact that he was circumcised on the eighth day. Not because it was wrong for his parents to have him circumcised according to the law, but because according to the law... And by the works of the law, no man is saved. No man is made righteous. And so all of those things that were gain to him are actually counted as loss for the sake of Christ, he says. For the sake of Christ. So what is the false circumcision? What is the doctrine, the teaching? What are the evil workers doing? Why do we have to beware of dogs? And who are the dogs? You know, if I actually... If I actually think of um, writing this back at that time, it's hard, it really is hard for us to wrap our minds around how insulting that is to, to say that because they would have known exactly who he was talking about. It wasn't some sort of... Um, 
generic general warning that is, you know, watch out for for bad people. There was a very particular group of bad people that he was saying were dangerous to them and that they had to watch out for. And that if they had joy, appropriate joy in Christ Jesus, and that if he kept reminding them of it, it would be a barrier, a gate, a guard, a protection against falling into those errors that he was very concerned for them to avoid. The false circumcision were people who worshipped falsely. The false circumcision were not people who did not worship. They were not people who were Romans who couldn't care less about uh, religion. They, they, weren't, they, weren't the, um, they weren't the people who were showing up at the temple in Ephesus to Diana, right? They were not the false circumcision. They couldn't care less about circumcision. Circumcision only applied to the Jews. That was what set the Jews apart, was the fact that they had been circumcised. So so when he talks about the false circumcision, he's bringing it straight home to a group of people that it's entirely clear who he's talking about. And what he's saying is that they worship falsely that their good deeds are actually bad deeds, like persecuting Jesus Christ. And remember, Paul was engaged in that. So he's speaking from personal experience about the dangers of that faith, that false faith, that false circumcision, that false hope. In fact, he says, I'm the best of them. If anyone could have confidence in the flesh, it would be me, he says. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. These are people who have put their hope and their confidence in the things that they have done and that have been done to them. They have put their confidence in the flesh. What is the flesh? Well, it's, it's literally the flesh. The flesh, in this case, when, I mean, circumcision's pretty fleshly, isn't it? I mean, there's no escaping the, we've, we tend to understand now in a sort of spiritual metaphorical sense because Paul here contrasts that fleshly reality with a circumcision that is true, a circumcision of the heart. And the whole New Testament does this. And so, but we can't forget that when they're speaking that way, nobody's, nobody's thinking metaphorically, nobody's thinking uh, about anything besides a bloody, nasty process that happens at eight days that all the Jews did and that they thought made a big difference. We are different. We are set apart. How are they set apart? By their actions set apart by the fact that they did this, that they didn't do that, that they, that they were clean, that they kept themselves clean, that they didn't eat with the dogs, those Gentiles that were filthy, that were not set apart, that would cause them to be ritually unclean, ceremonially unclean. They kept themselves clean like Paul did. And yet what Paul says is that they are a false circumcision, that they are worshiping falsely, that their confidence is in vain. It's an empty confidence. They have nothing that they can hope in.
until and unless they put their hope, even as Paul did, in Jesus Christ and count all of those things to be loss. I want to stop here and note that even during times of persecution, there are false religion dangers. Okay, we, we tend to think, and we, we do see that when persecution comes on the church, we, we say that the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, that it causes there to be a revitalization and a, and a growth and a purification of the church when, when persecution, and the more severe, the more this is the case often, that those who are not truly of the faith step outside the church and don't want to have anything to do with it because who wants to face those kinds of dangers, right? But here you have Paul writing in prison to the Philippians who are not just worried about him, but also worried about themselves facing persecution. And there's still false religion to watch out for. There's still always false religion to watch out for. In fact, false religion springs up from true religion and often takes it over. Put yourself in the the shoes of the early Christians at the time when when Paul would have been writing this. And today we think of Judaism and Christianity, right? But at that time, things were not nearly so uh, clear as to have a, a Judaism and a Christianity. What you had was knowledge of the one true God as given to his people, the Jews, right? And revealed in the words of his prophets and the law. And and so you have all of that, and you have people all over the world who worship that one true God according to his commands as he laid them out in the Old Testament. And then you have his son come. And what we tend to think is, when his son came, he established this new religion called Christianity. Right? And so then you have Judaism and you have Christianity. But in point of fact, what did Jesus do when he arrived on earth? He revealed the one true God more fully, more perfectly, in the flesh. Right? And as he revealed the one true God in the flesh, was he establishing something new? A new religion? Was it a new God? No. And so, when I, today, talk about Judaism and Christianity, when you think of those two things, what you have to realize is that Judaism, as it exists today... came to exist after Jesus Christ came to earth. What that means is that Judaism, and here we're seeing what Paul, this is what Paul is saying. Judaism is a false religion Because Judaism was beginning to exist right then, and this is what it was beginning to exist as. Instead of receiving the Messiah that God had promised, they had rejected the Messiah, they were putting their faith and their hope in the flesh and in their own works. That was where their confidence was. And so that was the establishment of what Judaism is to this day. And what he says is, it's a false circumcision, so they've lost the one thing that they thought they had. 
circumcision. Because that was what set them apart even from the rest of the believers. And so if, if we think of there being believers in the one true God, what you have is this whole mishmash of people who all worshipped the one true God, and some of them were falling off into this, this new false religion that was springing up that said, don't put your faith in Jesus Christ, continue to seek to do it yourself. You can do it. We've got this. Now, what that means is that false religion was springing up from within the church, from within the community of believers, from amongst those who claimed to be following the one true God, from people who had historically grown up in the church, from people who had known the one true faith inside and out, been trained at the best schools, the best seminaries. This is who Paul was. Hebrew of Hebrews. A Pharisee, zealous, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. He kept it all. Insofar as man is able to keep it all and find any righteousness in the law, how much righteousness did he find in the law? Well, he says in Romans that what he found was that the law came in, and what happened? Sin came out. (laughs) The law came in, and sin came out. His sin increased as he came to know the law better. So how much righteousness did he find in the law? None. What he found was condemnation. What he found was his own guilt magnified what he found was that he needed a Savior. What he found was that all that he had done, all that he had worked towards, all of his obedience was actually just a bunch of... Now, now the word is skubalon in, in the Greek, but in English it also starts with an S, and it's not in any of your translations because it's not appropriate to use those kinds of words. But it's, it's the same word for dung, and even then, most of your translations aren't going to be willing to put dung in. It's the kind of thing that in the ancient world, uh, you have examples of uh, a man walking into a house and saying, get all this off the table, and, and, and knocking it all off onto the floor. That's what he says in verse 8. He says he counts them but rubbish. What? What does he count to be dung? All things. All things. They're all a loss. And indeed, he he has lost and given up for the sake of Christ all things. So here you have rising up from within the community of faith, from within the true religion, a false religion, right at a critical time where the Son of Man has been revealed, right at a, right at a critical juncture where there does have to be a, 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 a new understanding. There has to be a, a growth in uh, Knowledge that comes through Jesus Christ. Because now there has been a new revelation. So at that critical juncture, what you have is a group of people splinter off from the true faith and establish a false faith. And they think that they're basing it on 
the, well, they think that they're maintaining the true faith, and all of their all of their things are based on that, and based on those patterns, based on those trajectories, based on those um, those historical practices, based on those traditions, and yet. Paul is pretty intense then, again, when he, the moment you start talking about tradition, he's like, they're traditions of men, down with the traditions of men. Not in this passage, and not quite in those words, but that's, he's very intense on not allowing yourselves to be overwhelmed by, to be put under the thumb of the Judaizers who come with traditions of men, rather than with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So here you are, at a time when you would least expect it, a time of persecution of the church. Who wants to be a part of the true faith when when persecution is coming? Well, only those who truly believe, right? And yet, he says, right at that time, you've got this danger of false teaching. Now, two things. Part of the reason that there is a danger of false religion and false teaching at that time is precisely because there's persecution. And by establishing something else, something other, something false, you can often escape much of the danger, much of the trials, much of the persecution. Now think about the, uh, the Romans being in control at that time. They had already granted a, an escape clause, if you will, to the Jews to live according to their faith. Why do we want to give that up? Let's just hunker down and, and put up this barrier and stay in this nice little enclosed safe area where we're allowed to believe and act and do exactly what we've always been allowed to believe and act and do. And by the way, we don't want to lose our power we don't want to have the Romans come in and, and let there, have there be more danger for us. And so that's part of the essential temptation that you see for the Jews at that time to establish something new or to reject the continuation of their faith through the Messiah, Christ Jesus, who is our Lord. False religion springs up from true religion, and often takes it over. And we see the same thing today in various places where there are true dangers that we have to beware of. False religion doesn't spring up and create something that's not even analogous to what it had before. False religion doesn't spring up and say, you know what, let's throw everything away and just start over like writing our own holy book from scratch. False religion springs up and says, oh no, we're following, we're, we're staying in the same path, we're staying in the same trajectory, we're, we're following the same guide, the same book, the same God. <clears throat> and yet what it does is it brings in a mixture of something else and adulterates it. It's an admixture. And it allows for people to avoid persecution and it allows for them to put their faith in the flesh, their hope, their confidence in their own works. That's always what happens. And the reason is because there's really only two kinds of hope. There is hope in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And there is hope that maybe somehow, some other way, you can be good enough without him. Those are the two possible hopes. And the one one is... It's Jesus Christ or death. 
it's Jesus Christ and his righteousness, or I don't know what's going to happen, but I know I'm going to end up in hell. It's Jesus Christ and his righteousness, and otherwise I'm the dog on the one hand. And on the other hand, it's, well, you know, I, I, try, to, I try to obey as best I can, and I think that God is loving enough and understanding enough of my weaknesses and my, you know, my upbringing and the troubles that I faced, and also my genes, and also all of the other things that have given me such a difficult time in keeping his word that certainly he'll be forgiving and let me into heaven. Those are the two choices. Which is to say, does that sound like confidence in the flesh? Well, it doesn't sound very confident, does it? But what, what hope is there in that? What is the hope? The hope is, if I just work hard enough Given the circumstances, there has to be a little bit of hope. There has to be, even if it's just a slim hope, that I could be good enough. That is the false religion that Paul is so concerned about. And when he is concerned about it, it's not... It's not uh, Meaningless to us today because, I mean, how much contact does the church today have with Judaism? Practically nothing, right? And so is this danger over and gone? No. Exactly the opposite. Confidence in the flesh comes up and creeps in and overtakes and, and happens from within the church century after century Year after year, decade after decade, we see the same thing repeat itself. This is what the Reformation was about. The Reformation was a statement that into the church had crept an idea that you could, through things that you did, get yourself holy enough and even potentially get your siblings who'd gone before you and died already, your parents, your grandparents, and many others, enough righteousness that you could get them into heaven. How? Well, among other things, by spending enough money to buy that righteousness. This is to put confidence in the flesh. But how much church, I mean, how much does the church today, how much does the Protestant church really have to do with the Roman Catholic church today? Well, not much. It's been, you know, several hundred years of sort of growing apart and occasional sort of swooping back and forth and in and connection. And, and, but is that what the temptation is for us today? Beware the dogs. Is there any group that we can say that that applies to today? Is there, is there a movement, is there a temptation among the people of God today within the true church to begin to put faith in their own Works to have confidence in the flesh. Absolutely. But what happens with this is that we we slide slowly into this. We don't just throw ourselves whole hog into, you know what, I just, I'm sick of putting my faith in Christ. I think I'll try to find something else. No, it's, it's a slow process. It involves teaching, sure, listening to people. This is why he gives the warning, and this is why he then says, you know, hey, rejoice in the Lord. That is the protection. 
rejoice in the Lord. Why? Well, because if you're not rejoicing in the Lord, then you're going to seek out and rejoice in other things. And so in the church, you can see zeal and love of God slowly fade and zeal for other things begin to grow and take their place. Things that seem good, things that have a history of needing to be addressed. Things that come out of the fruit of faith. When you go back to the middle of last century and you see the rise of liberalism in the church, it's exactly the same thing as is being described here by Paul. Concern for social justice is today the exact same movement. What is the social justice movement in the church apart from a desire to label yourself according to a work that we have done in the flesh? And that those who do not take that label for themselves are wicked. Right? Because the Judaizers, in calling themselves the circumcision, they thought they were excluding all of these people who had put their faith in Jesus Christ and who weren't following the law. Oh, well, you don't care about doing good. Oh, well, you don't care about the people who are weak. Oh, well, you don't care about... You, you see? That's, that's the similarity. But what does Paul put his confidence in? No confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. His confidence is the same as the reason that he is able to rejoice even while he's in jail. His confidence is in Christ Jesus and the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And that flowing out of that, that he's going to know him, he's going to know the power of his resurrection, he's going to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Now that's again one of those things where like, Really? That's going to make you rejoice? Fellowship of his sufferings means like joining with him together in it. I had a friend I was talking to on the phone this last week who said he thinks that fellowship is one of the most abused words in the church today because we've taken it to mean a synonym of hanging out. But he said you don't, it wasn't called the hangout of the ring. It was called the fellowship of the ring because they had a work they were doing and joined together to do, right? It's not the hangout of the ring. And and here we have the fellowship of his suffering. It means to join together in it, to be united in that same goal, which we saw earlier in chapter 1, right? You know, that unity that that he's exhorting them to of vision, of purpose. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, You know, be of the same mind with one another. That's the fellowship. And then here you get to him saying, you know, that he's he's rejoicing, he's having confidence because he's lost all of his righteousness, he's lost all of his goodness, and he's lost all of his badness. And what he's received is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and he's received a fellowship with him, fellowship in resurrection, You see, he's going to receive, he's going to have the righteousness of Christ because he's going to be found in him. And yes, he's going to know the power of a changed life. Yes, he's going to know the power, ultimately, of resurrection from the dead. And also in the process, 
he's going to have fellowship with him in his sufferings. And he's going to be conformed to his death. And this is, this is signified in baptism. That we are conformed to his death. That just as he went down into the grave, we go down into death. But that is not where we are left in a baptism. We are raised up because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And this is where he receives all his confidence, all his benefit, all his hope. And so he's able to rejoice. And he's able to say it again and again and again to the Philippians while he's in jail while he sees the dangers that they're facing through persecution, and then while he sees the fact that growing up in the church is a poisonous, disastrous, wicked, evil doctrine that he, he can't even come up with words bad enough to describe it. How bad it is. And he says, rejoice. And that is itself what will be the protection for them to hear the same thing again and again rejoice what do we have to rejoice in when we're suffering when we're under trial when we're in persecution when we see false doctrines and false teachers arise what we have to rejoice in see that's what drives us back right there we're forced to go back to Christ aren't we because what else do we have to rejoice in in those moments When all the rest of it has been taken away and we realize that it was trash, we realize all I have is Christ. In fact, having him, I have all things. Having him, I can rejoice. Let's pray.